0: And uh, Isaiah 36 to 39, my goal was to do these four chapters in two weeks. Uh, I don't know, looking back at some of the introductory stuff that we need to do, I may not be able to do that exactly, but it might be three. Um, some, I Frankly, folks ideal in so many different areas I forget what some pas- how good some passages are and, how I, and, and then find out how much better they, they are than I thought they were at times <laughs> so we're in this uh, section uh, where we're going to look at I say this section is a, is a conclusion and an introduction so chapters 1 to 35 have been written against the threat from Assyria to Judah uh, we're going to see the end of that threat in 36 and 37. But 38 and 39 are going to introduce the threat from Babylon, and, uh, and uh, chapters 40 to 66 will be written with that in mind. So this is a, a conclusion and an introduction. Uh, I know it's backwards. The conclusion comes before the introduction, but it's the conclusion of what we've been talking about since the beginning of our study and introduction of a new aspect of the uh, life of Israel with God so um, we move into it there is a three part structure to the book Uh, chapters 1 to 35 are written as we've just said are written with the Assyrian threat in the background And 36 to 39 then deal with that Uh, that's all just what we just said Um, so I want to start with the conclusion first (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, because that's ending up this long long lengthy section that we've gone through and um uh it's it's easy to lose track of where you are but it's always the sinfulness of Judah that must be judged and it must be judged that the 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 tool god uses is is Assyria since chapter Seven and eight, he has said he's going to use Assyria, but he's also going to judge Assyria. So now the judgment is going to come uh, in uh, chapters uh, thirty. So thirty six and thirty seven, then thirty eight and thirty nine. Uh, Judah isn't going to be entirely without judgment. Um, there's an interesting passage. Leviticus twenty six con- contains the the. Blessings and Curses of the Mosaic Covenant. There are two passages, Leviticus 26 and the other is Deuteronomy 28. What's interesting about Leviticus 26 by comparison is chapter 20, Leviticus 26 gives the reason for the curses. The, the curses are not there simply to get back at evil people. Um, I've for, forgotten the number, it's four or five times in Leviticus 26, he tells them, I'm going to judge you this way. And if you do not... um, But even if after this you do not turn back, I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And he does that four or five times in Leviticus 26. The goal of the covenant curses was not to, to make sinful people miserable... The goal was to call them to repentance. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, what Paul says in Romans 8.3, there were some things that were impossible for the law. The law as law, the law as covenant, has no guarantee of God's enablement for people. It's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant inherently entails the, the, the Spirit's enablement for our for our whole life. What our pastor was talking about this morning is you have the ability to to live a righteous life. You have all the resources. Peter says it. Uh, His divine promises have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And and blessing, brothers and sisters, is not being happy or well-fed or well-clothed and well-housed it's having all that you need for life and for service we have everything we need he's given us that's ephesians actually it's also peter uh he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in christ jesus so if that's the case we have the capacity israel didn't now that doesn't mean that god didn't help them do you follow this there's yes no do you follow this there's always a remnant in israel so god preserves a group of people who are his throughout the centuries and he is enabling them all the way all the way through but the covenant doesn't promise that god may do god may do more than what the covenant promises but he can't do less are you with me here so uh chapters here here is these two chapters (coughs) Please somebody put it on your calendar almond has a chart <laughs> i don't I don't think visually so somebody please put that down actually used a chart january twenty twenty uh, twenty nineteen I'm still gracious how far are we out of the 20th century twenty twenty um, uh, a chart but it's to illustrate the fact that in in the first part, with all the light over there coming from the window, you probably can't see very well. Um, but it's the, the same point that we... I had to put the chart in. Okay. So now we, we look at the promised destruction of Assyria. In, a, in an interesting twist, in Isaiah 7... Uh, Isaiah is sent to the water, to the upper pool to meet Ahaz and to call him to trust God. But in chapter 37, Isaiah and Hezekiah goes to the water pool, and there he is called to trust God. Ahaz fails. Hezekiah succeeds. Are you with me here? So in a sense, chapters 7 to 37 are about two kings at the upper pool and And the response to God, and the- the the all the material from seven through thirty five is the result of the kingship not trusting the Lord um, but here we have a unique response in the king so chapter thirty six the Lord preserves Jerusalem for his namesake in this passage, and here i'll look at we'll look at it under two heads first. Sennacherib and the Assyrian army lay siege to Jerusalem, and then God's answer to Assyria's challenge in 37. Uh, This is the Assyrian Empire. This is the late Assyrian Empire. It's after the immediate events that we're talking about in this chapter. But this was a powerful people, incredibly powerful. And the only account, the only way one can account for them is there's something more than human agency at work. The Assyrian kings would always associate this with their gods. So Ashur, the chief god of the Assyrian pantheon, was the god who gave us victory and everything. And they sacrificed to Ashur and sang praises to his name. But our chapters, indeed, from chapter 7, we're already beginning to see that that isn't, in fact, the case. Um, here is Sennacherib himself, the very person. Uh, he's identified in the inscription. This is a relief. Um, uh, you'll be relieved to know there won't be many more of these, but this is a relief uh, of Sennacherib. His, his name means, apparently, um, the god Sin, uh, was one of the gods of the Assyrians and Babylonians, seen has replaced the brothers he, he was apparently a second or third born child and the other two or at least two had died or for one reason or another had been um cast out of the of the succession and so God has replaced, seen has replaced the brothers but Sennacherib is how we know him and Hebrew is Sancherib, I don't know why I told you that, doesn't matter to anything um Chapter 36, then, Sennacherib and the Assyrian army lay siege to Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 20, you have the Assyrian ultimatum to to Judah. Verse 1, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. them, um, Yeah, seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh, Rabshakeh, Apparently it, it it this perhaps is the chief commander under Sennacherib. Um I looked up as much as I could the name Rabshakeh in Hebrew. In Akkadian it means something like the exalted head, something like that. Are you with me here? So this may be the chief commander of of Sennacherib's armies has come. Um Sennacherib is down at Lachish, southeast of, southwest of Jerusalem, 20, 25 miles. Major fortified city uh, protecting um, the approach of an army uh, up the valley to Jerusalem. Are you with me here? So they've got to capture Lachish. In the course of this siege at Lachish, we have actually we have letters written from Lachish up to the city in Jerusalem. Uh, asking for help, asking for, uh, and they say, we looked and couldn't see the, the signal fires from such and such a city, and so apparently the, the Assyrians had already taken that. We have almost, it, it's not quite minute-by-minute minute coverage of this event, but it's much more detailed than so many other events in Scripture. Fred? the Assyrians already in charge of Egypt? Uh, not yet. They're heading down there. The Egyptians are going to come in this passage but they're going to turn back before they get into trouble with the Egyptians. I, I'm sorry, with the Assyrians. The Assyrians are just indomitable at this period. Um, so uh, here, here, here's the map. You can see Jerusalem on the left, on the right there in the uh, uh, hill country, and Lachish is uh, southwest there, as you see. And there's a valley that leads up there. It's a prime valley for for an army to approach Jerusalem and, and and besiege the city. So they've got to take Lachish. Um, there are some details about the maneuvering of the armies in the passage that we won't belabor. I just want to set the stage for you. We're a day's march. Thank you. Can you see better now? All right. They're a day's march from Jerusalem, essentially. Okay? All right, so... Uh, the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Eliakim and Shedna show up here. Shedna has been demoted. He was the, the steward of the king's house. He's been demoted As the prophecy said he would be earlier, Eliakim, the son of Helkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, um, uh, came out to meet him. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king. Do you recognize that language? Thus says the great king? What does it sound like? Thus says the Lord. This is the way a messenger introduces his message, and especially a royal messenger. Are you with me here? So that tells us something important about the the prophets. They are royal messengers from the true king to his servant, the king. Are you with me here? Yes, no? When you hear, when you see in the text, thus says the Lord, think, Mm. they're coming from the great king. To address the man that's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, so, thus says, uh, where did it go? They've taken it away. Um, thus says the great king and the king, uh, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? <clears throat> I say, your, com- your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of, of, of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, um, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you are you you shall worship before this altar um, Sennacherib has no experience of a of a single god. he only has many gods, and you can make them mad at you <laughs> yes um in israel he he's trying to figure out in some ways he's trying to figure out what in the world is this with one god this then what were all these other altars for? They were obviously for the worship of of the Lord your God. Yes? Even though you and I know that from kings, they were also for idols. Yes? But he doesn't understand this. They only name one God, so it must have been his altars. If you make one God mad, if you've got many gods, you've got other gods that, that you can be happy with, right? And so... So you, you hope the ones that are happy with you are stronger than the ones that are up, upset with you. But if you've only got one God and you take away his author, uh, altars and, and, and uh, give up any place for the service to, the, to that one God, he's going to be pretty mad. And who are you going to turn to? Rick? Their gods could do certain things. Yeah. So their gods are demonic. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that's a critical point most Christians miss. 1 First, First Corinthians 10, uh, he said, Paul is dealing with the problem of whether you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And in the, in the, um, in the discussion, he says, uh, what am I saying? That an idol is anything? Uh, or something sacrificed to an idol is anything? No. But what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Are you with me here? Uh, this is, the, see, as, as monotheists, we've been so deeply convinced that there's one God and one God only, that we think, well, there simply are no other gods, and, and this, this simply is the crucial point. <laughs> there are no other gods. But... There are beings who have enormous power who masquerade as God, and they're all over the place. Uh, Satan has two grand strategies, uh, one that he prefers, one that he sometimes is forced to use. So the grand strategy he prefers is to make everybody think that he doesn't matter, he's not; he doesn't exist. Uh, so what were you taught when you were a child and you went out on Halloween about the boogeyman and... they they don't exist yeah they do we just didn't want to tell children that and we didn't believe it anyway because we were kind of even as Christians moving toward a kind of materialistic Christianity Uh, now we're beginning to see folks what is behind all of this evil that's coming out when Satan cannot remain in the background unseen, manipulating working his will he comes into the foreground and, and um, simply fills the attention of everyone uh, Everyone with himself. Uh, what was her name? Um, McLean, the actress. Shirley. Shirley McLean said one time, I, I feel like I was, in a former life, I was a Canaanite goddess. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, she was really messed up, but... Those demons are still still around. Are you with me here? So she is so focused on that that she can't see anything else. So we read on. Um, you've Hezekiah has removed all the altars. The Lord your God is mad at you. Why? Why do you think you can rely on Him? Uh, in chapter thirty six, for the most part, Rabshakeh stays on on solid ground. He could have. He could have shut up then and probably have made his case. But he did something real bad in chapter 37. Okay? So we're, ha- we're headed there. Now therefore come and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. Here, here's a deal I got for you. Such a deal you cannot refuse. I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can put riders on them, I'll give you 2,000 horses to stand up against my master. Uh, come and make a bargain with my master and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put uh, on your part to put riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? What kind of strength do you have? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against the land to destroy it? Did you read his Isaiah eight? He said he was going to bring Assyria. It was going to be the the axe in his hand. So do these people know that prophecy? Probably. Assyrian? Yeah, I, I would assume so. Oh, the the Assyrians? Assyrian. No, he's just using good propaganda. Oh. But okay. the the Israelites know. Right. I'm sorry, I didn't. I underestimated what you were saying. Verse eleven. <laughs> Then then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, the international language of, of um, diplomacy. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh's response was, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? This is... This is where sieges often ended up. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried out with a loud voice in Judean, in Hebrew we would call it, and said, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not not be able to deliver you. And boy, that's no kidding. Hezekiah has no strength. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Eat each of his own vine and his own fig tree. Drink a, a, a waters from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. A, a land of grain and new wine. A land of bread and vineyards. I, I'm going to give you something as good as what you've got. Problem is, it's not the land God gave. Verse eighteen: Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, "The Lord will deliver us." Has any... now he gets in trouble? Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Svarvayim? And, and when have they de- delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Now now he's gotten in trouble. It's going to get worse. But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer them. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, and the the recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh." A few comments I want to make about this passage. Um, C.S. Lewis has some remarkably important comments about faith. Hezekiah's faith is remarkable here, and these remarkable comments are important to understand how remarkable Hezekiah's faith is. C.S. Lewis said in his uh, essay, uh, 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 Religion, Reality, or Substitute, Now I define faith as the power of continuing to believe what we once honestly thought to be true until cogent reasons for honestly changing our minds are brought before us. The difficulty of such continuing to believe is constantly ignored or misunderstood in discussions on this subject. What is so hard about, once you've been convinced of something, continuing to believe in it? I'll show you. He goes on. Uh Our faith in Christ wavers not so much when real arguments come against it as when it looks improbable. When the whole world takes on that desolate look, which really tells us much more about the state of our passions and even our digestion than about reality. He illustrates it in the essay by saying when you were a child and they were wanting you to jump into the swimming pool you knew the instructor was there to catch you you had seen your classmates jump into the pool and if if they didn't do it safely the the instructor caught them yes but you're standing on the edge of the pool yourself looking at the water what happens I'm not so sure he's going to catch me. So when things start looking improbable, <coughs> when they look dangerous, it's hard to trust. He goes on a little more here. The question has, all, has been explored in scores of ways. Can God be trusted? Is he strong enough? Oh, in fact, this might be Oswald. Yes, he is. Um, as, as, let me hold that off for a few moments. As Hezekiah and his, and his court officials, listen to Rabshakeh. They know the line of march. They know the cities that he has taken. They know the strength of the Assyrian army. They know its invincibility. And they know how small their army is. Judah is reduced virtually to nothing but Jerusalem. By the time Rabshakeh, not quite. Uh, Lakish is still there, but Lachish can't send any help to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem can't send any help to Lachish. So they know how small their army is. Uh, uh, one of the uh, comments on the Assyrian army that I ran into this week said that it had been estimated, e- even by modern scholars, in the hundreds of thousands. Jerusalem at its height might have had 50,000 inhabitants. That's men, women, and children, old folks. How do you stand up to an army like that? They have all the siege engines they need, battering rams that will knock down walls of stone. How do you stand up to that? And when the danger is clear, continuing in faith is very, very difficult. Verse 15, we read just a moment ago. Um, uh, Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will enable us, will, will surely deliver us. Um, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Here is what J- uh, John Oswald says. The question has been explored in scores of ways can God be trusted? Folks, this is an extremely important quotation from Oswald. The whole of what we've been looking at since chapter 5 is the question, can God be trusted? Everything in it is about, can God be trusted? Is he strong enough? Well, objectively, the answer is yes. am not sure he'll use that for me. <clears throat> Is he faithful enough? Yes, he's faithful. But how do you account for all the terrible pains and toils of life? Gail, the very very thing you talked about this morning. How do you account for that? Is God faithful in such times? If not him, then who or what should be trusted? The nations? <clears throat> Humanity? Mm-hmm. We might add government? Mm-hmm. What? Oswald well, asks. And of course, we're beginning to see that government's in a whole brick. As Christians, we though come to a point or should come to a point that we realize even the hardships that God allows and the difficulties and sometimes death of people. We yeah. Love, we just have to trust God still mm-hmm. and Solomon. that's right there is the ultimate taunt who among the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand that's the ultimate taunt nations greater than Judah Judah folks, Judah had no natural resources it had no strong sources of water uh, it had very little a- uh, agricultural land available, just in the valleys. Are you with me here? What resources do they? They don't have gold. They don't have silver. Uh, uh, my, my, gu- yeah, my my guide in India and Israel—they in- both start with I. What's the difference? Uh, my guide in Israel said, "So this is the this is the chosen land. This is the land God gave Israel." Why didn't he give us something on the other side? There's oil over there. (laughs) They, They knew that those other peoples and nations that Assyria had already conquered were greater than they are. What hope do we have? I say again, it's the ultimate taunt. Now, 36, 21 to 22, you get the people's response. Um, we, we read that. They were silent. But chapter 37 is the crucial passage. It's crucial for two ways. First, because Rabshakeh speaks again. <laughs> it's one thing to step in a mess of stuff. It's another thing to wallow in it, and he's just doing it. You heard the story about the lawyer who went to speak to the Indian tribe? Have you heard this? And, they say, and as he'd say something, they'd say, hoo-wah, hoo-wah. He'd say something else, and they'd say, hoo-wah, hoo-wah. And he thought, boy, they're really responding well, and the whole thing just went through like that. As he was walking back to the car, one of the men who had invited him to speak um, said, oh, watch that hoo over there. Don't step in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Rabshakeh has stepped in the hoo Now he's going to wallow in it. So uh, verses 1 to 5, Hezekiah pleads for Isaiah's prayer. When King Hezekiah heard of it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and entered into the house of the Lord. For most of us, burlap bag will speak here, sackcloth. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. Um, They said to him, Thus says King... Royal ambassadors, yeah? Thus says King Hezekiah. "Um, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth... And there is no strength to deliver. Um, Mother and baby are going to die. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God. Oswald points this out. It's a crucial idea. Do you notice that he doesn't plead the covenant? You made a covenant with us. He doesn't plead the grace of God for sinners. He doesn't foolishly claim that they've been faithful to the covenant. The only thing that matters in this situation is the only thing that matters ever. It's the reputation of God. Um, the king of Assyria has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has set, has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Um, th- this is Oswald's comment on that. And it's, it's so good. I, let me just read it to you. Hezekiah realizes that he is in no position to demand anything from God. This is so both by reason of God's sovereignty and because of Hezekiah's creaturehood, but also because Hezekiah has not led the nation to trust God as he should have prior to this time. How can you say this? Here's how you can say this. Remember we talked about the embassies that went down to Egypt to look for help. He may not have sent them, but he didn't prohibit them. Well, I've tried everything else. (laughs) Um, None of this is to deny the biblical witness that Hezekiah was a good king. Probably it was his tender heart which led him to this kind of repentance. It's hard to see Ahaz doing anything like this. But it is to say that even good men can be short-sighted. Um, It is of great significance that both here and in the next incident, Hezekiah's greatest concern is the honor of God. Thus, I'm sorry, this is surely a testimony to the essential greatness of Hezekiah's heart. He is not first concerned with his, his or his nation's survival. Effectively, that doesn't matter. He is chiefly concerned that their actions have provided the vehicle whereby God's name has been brought into contempt. Furthermore, he knows that if God's glory is made paramount, then the nation will survive. It was the putting of survival first which had brought them into this perilous state. Um, I was teaching uh, about faith in Memphis in a class like this, and... I had been teaching through Genesis about what faith looks like and how faith is practiced. And a, a, a person in the class, as I finished the Genesis series, came up and said, well, I can see how Abraham knew how to trust, I, I just don't know how to trust God myself. Uh, and I thought, <laughs> I thought I made that clear, <laughs> but evidently I didn't. Um, And so I went to 1 Corinthians. You look to see what God has said, and you go do it. You trust him in reference to it. Does this make sense? But there's a larger issue that Oswald has pointed out. You may trust God absolutely for every danger you face when your primary concern is the reputation of God. If it means you must walk on water, you will walk on water. Are you with me? Yes or no? If the reputation of God is tied up in what you're doing, and most of what we do, his reputation is not tied up in, except in a secondary way, because we're known as Christians, then people see us as representing our God, and so his name is represented in us. But most of our pursuits are not pursuit of the reputation of God. So when our pursuits are the reputation of God then we may trust him absolutely for anything and everything. It seems like that last statement it was the putting of survival Yes. Which had brought them Uh to this peril. Isn't that a crucial... Yeah. yeah. Um, So um, I I know these long quotations are not delightful uh, when we're in a group like this but some of these are so good it's just hard not to put them in um, now verses um, well verse 4 continues uh, a phrase which expresses the Hebrew understanding of the difference between their God I'm sorry this is the living God um, is a phrase which expresses the, diff- the Hebrew understanding of the difference between their God and the gods of their neighbors those gods were lifeless and helpless but the Lord is alive now and evermore. The thought that a follower of one of those could get away with defining God, a defaming God, was almost more than a devout Hebrew could stomach. Note David's response to Goliath's taunts. Yes. In, in the uh, uh, here, it says, perhaps your God. Yeah. That yes. God. Yeah. Well, I want you to remember when Isaiah went to Ahaz. <coughs> he said um, uh, ask the Lord your God a sign in the heavens above or in the earth beneath yes remember this and Ahaz's response was I will not tempt the Lord your God Hezekiah I'm sorry Ahaz effectively renounces his role in the Davidic covenant and Hezekiah is not sure where he stands at this point but he knows that um, the relationship between Isaiah and, and the Lord is, is clear. Um, so, so, so his faith perhaps is even more remarkable. It because is. Because of that. Yeah. Where, where do we stand? Is this the time that judgment must fall? Is it under my administration that judgment must fall? Maybe so. If so, perhaps, though, the Lord will do something else. So Oswald continues. Uh, The Lord your God demonstrates a certain reticence on Hezekiah's part. Um, The latter seems somewhat more likely. The king is aware that from one perspective at least, had God been truly his as he claimed, he would have been more careful of God's honor. And so this is an even better answer than my answer was. I should have waited. Yeah, I should have too. I should have known my own PowerPoint. So, so here, in Shane, he testifies that if God is to help them, it will not be because he, the king, has some special claim upon God. Verses 6 and 7, Isaiah's response. Terse, Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, and here we come to the ambassadorial introduction again. Do not be afraid because of the words you, that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the by the sword in his own hand, in his own land. Rather, so verses. Um, let me move on here to verses. Uh, eight to thirty-five, Sennacherib now sends another challenge, and now it's an overt frontal attack on God. So verses eight to thirty-five. Um, then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libnah, uh, for he had heard that the king had, had left Lachish. When he heard uh, them saying, "Tirhaka, the king of Cush, uh, he uh, he has come out of the out to fight against you," and when he is I'm sorry I can't see Uh, and when he has heard it he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying thus you shall say to Hezekiah king of Judah do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you saying Jerusalem will not be taken will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria behold you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands destroying them completely so will you be spared Did the gods of those nations whom my fathers have destroyed deliver them? Even Gozon and Haran and and Rezif and the sons of Eden who are in Telasar. Oh boy, that that floats my boat. But these are distant nations. In the next verse, he comes to the near nations. Where is the king of Hamath? The king of Arpad. The king of the city of Sepharvayim or Hena and Ivah. Nobody's been able to stand against me. You, you wipe your hand across the mat. I've taken it all. Then Hezekiah took the letter. Here's a marvelous response from Hezekiah. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord. Now, Chris, he becomes my God too. So went up to the house of the Lord, spread it out before the Lord. As evidence, uh, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all... Everything they said is true. Have devastated all the countries uh, and their lands. And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they, they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand that in all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. That's that's prayer that God answers. So, verse 14, our faith wavers. Here is again from C.S. Lewis. Our faith wavers not so much when real arguments come against it as when it looks improbable. But look at Hezekiah. I, that's where I am, that's where I am. Uh, at, earlier it looked improbable and he was wavering, he wasn't sure where to go maybe down to Egypt yes but now he has been driven the only, the, the only hope they have is the one God who exists who is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham God of Isaac, God of Jacob he is the one God who exists who is the God not only of Israel but of all the nations and all the earth and the creator of all the earth so he turns to that one power and that one power alone Because we're self-sufficient. You're an American. You're supposed to be self-sufficient. Amen? Uh, So, um, again, this is contrasting Hezekiah's prayers with other kings of the ancient Near East who prayed. Uh, I can't see this either. Um, (laughs) Prayers of monarchs in somewhat uh, similar straits appear in extra-biblical sources. Two of these are the prayer of the Egyptian Sethos before the Assyrian threat and the prayer of Ashurbanipal in the Elamite crisis. In both cases, the king perceives himself to be in extremis in in the end of his resources and cries out to his god, ultimately receiving assurances of help. help. The chief difference between those prayers and this one is that the latter contains no protestations of the king's righteousness or claims that he deserves to be helped. Can it be that this king knows that these are not the issues? The issue is whether the Lord alone is sovereign over the nations. It is this which Hezekiah has learned, the theme of chapters 7 to 35, and it is this upon which all his hope rests. So moving on, here here are all the peoples that Assyria has just mentioned in the speech. God's response comes in 22 and following. Um, Down to verse 35. So 23. um, uh, Let's start at verse 21. Then Isaiah the son of Amoz sent word to Hezekiah saying... Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, daughter Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted your eyes? against the Holy One of Israel. That Holy One of Israel is a phrase I think that means the God who has given himself a unique and exclusive relationship to Israel. Uh, Through your servants you have reproached the Lord, and you have said with many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains. <laughs> chariots and mountains, that makes no sense whatsoever, but he did it. Uh, To the remotest parts of Lebanon, I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. That's true literally, but also this kind of language is used for conquering kingdoms. So all the nations of the earth are a forest, and you cut down trees, you conquer the nation. Um, um, I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to the highest peak Its thickest forest, I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. Now now the Lord is not quoting the Assyrians. Now this is his own word. Have you not heard? No, as a matter of fact, they might have been told, but they didn't listen. Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn, be, uh, turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Mm. Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it's, it, it has grown up. But I know you're sitting down and, I, and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you are raging against me and because of your arrogance... That has come up to my ears. Therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. And he's speaking now to Hezekiah himself. This shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. It's like Jubilee year. Or or sabbatical year. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same? And in the third year, you you sow, reap, plant vineyards, eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Uh, From out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Zion survivors. The zeal of the... Zeal is a nice English word. In Hebrew, it's a much more pointed word, jealousy. Um, Jealousy in scripture can have two senses positive and negative the positive being my wife has the right to expect unique relationship with me that I should not bring any others into that same relationship is that true? that's a a right kind of jealousy it is a healthy and wholesome kind of jealousy does that make sense to you? So the Lord is jealous over Israel too. He's not going to allow Israel to go serve other gods, but neither is he going to allow others to usurp his place. So the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield, throw up a siege ramp against it by the way he came, By the same he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. The last of the passage, last two verses, God's judgment is carried out. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria... Departed and returned. they're not out at the gates of Jerusalem. They, they, you couldn't have a camp that big or, uh, on the hills around Jerusalem. It's down in the valley at Lakeish and Libna. But they're dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adrammelech and Sharezer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, And Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Who is king over the earth? Well, in the 8th century B.C., it's the Lord. Who is king over the earth in the 21st century A.D.? Let's close with prayer. Father, our faith, you know, is, is weak. It wavers and when things look dangerous when it seems ridiculous to trust in you is the time when we most we, we most need to trust so when our when our faith seems improbable when the truth of the things we've learned in the past seem unlikely but the arguments haven't changed the evidence hasn't changed you haven't changed then hold us fast for we are weak We long to trust you, but also, Father, we need urgently to have the sense that our purpose on earth is not to live. Our purpose is to serve the greatness of our great king's name. So let us give ourselves to that great goal, and then whatever comes, we can trust you wherever we we are. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.